So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here with the Monthly Magazine Show for your ears and we have a lot coming up for you this episode. Here's just a taster. I remember talking to my wife shortly after it all began and I turned to her at one point and said, you know what, if people knew how easy it is to destroy someone online, they would be frightened. When your name is smeared online, how can you fix it? I meet the man battling to save his reputation. Plus... One goes round the base of your dong and the other one goes at the top and every five seconds they compress. Erectile dysfunction? Alex Fox rises to the occasion and we get nosy about experiential fragrance. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and in response to impending father Ollie Pitt's concerns about the smell of reusable nappies, uh, Claire has been in touch. She says, Ollie, I would like to bust this myth. I have used all sorts of cloth nappies. I think you mean your children have, Claire. And my favourites have lanolised wool covers. When washed correctly, twice, with hot water and biodetergent, they do not smell! Exclamation mark. Uh, thanks for that, Claire. I will gently forward your email on to Ollie when the time comes, uh, along with a basket of muffins and balloons. Uh, thanks as well to everybody for all your kind words about last month's edition, Military Surplus. Uh, Andy at facebook.com slash Man says, Ollie, the middle feature last month already had me in tears. Then I realised I knew one of your guests, Ken via his husband Colin and the Phoenix Arts Club that they run in London. I knew nothing of this part of his past and all the injustice that he'd faced in his life. And Dylan says, Ollie, thank you for this amazing episode and sharing what those guys went through. It is so sad that it happened so recently. It seems like a story from decades ago. Uh, yeah, and I think that is sort of generally the tenor of the feedback that we've received on last month, actually. It's kind of sharing my shock, I guess, that it was possible, it turns out, to go to jail in this country, um, to be sent to see a psychiatrist in this country just for being gay uh, as recently as the turn of the century. Um, do listen back to it if you haven't heard the episode yet. It is um, a cracker. And I am really, really thrilled to say that BFBS, the Forces Radio Station, are going to be retransmitting it uh, as part of their Remembrance Weekend coverage. We're really delighted about that. Um, so if you serve in the Armed Forces, actually, and you've discovered us through that, uh, hello, welcome. As you'll discover, we have many listeners overseas, uh, and I hope this is the beginning of a long relationship with your ears. Uh, right, before we get going on today's show, uh, my thanks as ever to all our new beer money contributors, Quentin Jarman, Vicky Chester, Anna Schindler, Kristen Carlson and Theodor Tonchev. Uh, we love you all. 
unequivocally, and also to our sponsors for this episode, Beer52.com. Now, this is the time of the year when one naturally starts nesting, hibernating, um, gathering your winter fuel, and what could be a more reassuring, delightful thing in that context than a free box of craft beer to stuff in your cupboard? That's right, I said free. Now, I don't get it for free. I'm a subscriber. I pay Beer52 for my monthly box. And last night we were having roast dinner... I don't know about you, I am incapable of uh, making gravy, specifically making gravy, without having a stout beer open at the same time. Um, The stout doesn't go in the gravy. (laughs) It's not to improve the stock or something. It goes down my throat. It's just this psychosomatic thing. Um, The smell of the meat juices propels me to a can of stout. Anyway, it was an oatmeal one. Oh, it was so good. Lingering smoky taste. Uh, But, you know, if you just prefer uh, pale ales and lagers, you can specify that. You can tweak your monthly case to your preferences. You can cancel at any time. It is such a great British company. And if you don't believe me, um, why not try a free box of beer for yourself. Uh, You can get a free case of beer delivered to your door right now just for listening to this podcast. Go to beer52.com slash modern to receive your first trial box of eight beers plus a magazine plus a snack. All you cover is the cost of the postage. Um, And if you order before Christmas 2021, folks, they will chuck in two extra beers for you. That is 10 beers for nothing. Beer52.com slash modern. Go and get it. Beer52.com slash modern. And thanks again to them. Uh, Right, coming up this month, you will learn what a Ridgy scan is. Uh, You will learn why revenge websites are often based in Arizona. And you'll learn why you might be wearing ISOE Super right now. Let's go. Right, time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with Alex Fox. Surprise! We, we searched far and wide for a replacement for Ollie Pitt whilst he's on paternity leave. I don't know how we came up with your name out the hat. I feel like the zeitgeist haunting Ollie P's usual section. For one month only, I get to ride on top, cowgirl style, and be at the beginning of the show. Uh, you've brought me to Walthamstow. We're in the house of a lovely lady called Tasha who is a scent designer. Why? Because... I am convinced, Ollie, that immersive scent experiences are going to be a big, big trend in coming months. Do you think really people are going to pay specifically to have an experience based on smell? Yes, I do. Now, using scents and smells to enhance an experience is not a new concept. One gadget, which I think you can still buy in Japan, but pretty much bombed everywhere else in the world, was called the Senti, and it was a little iPhone dongle that hung off the end of your mobile phone, and it emitted a puff of either, intriguingly, lavender, rose, or baked potato smell. Uh, Whilst you're on the phone? No, whenever a text message or um, an alert arrived at your phone, a customised scent would accompany (laughs) the text from that person. Insert Bob Bunkhouse joke about the mother-in-law calling. (laughs) The world's first olfactory alarm clock, the Sensor Wake, was designed to wake you up to the smell of coffee or croissants instead of an annoying, buzzing, bleeping alarm. I mean, you can just get a smart plug for a cafetiere, can't you? That's probably better. (laughs) But one of the problems that they encountered was that there's a limit to the type of scents that you can create Uh, at at that sort of price point Mm. um, that people actually enjoy Mm. and also a lot of these gadgets require not just for you to invest in the initial product but also refills for it I find refilling the ink cartridge on my printer annoying enough I don't want to buy 
loads and loads of scent cartridges. One of the reasons why I think that scent as an immersive experience is going to grow in the near future is because some people are actually experimenting with different ways of delivering that experience. So rather than actually getting you to smell a compound, which requires you to be in the room with it, Mm. there are people investigating whether they can actually stimulate the areas of your brain that pertain to scent to evoke that experience without the molecules actually needing to be in the room. Admittedly, at the moment, some of that involves putting electrodes up your schnoz, which may not appeal to everybody, but it's intriguing. That is interesting, isn't it? So, like, whether your brain can just be triggered even perhaps by the view of something. And that's the Heston Blumenthal thing, isn't it? Like, you know, you're looking at an orange, but it tastes of a pear or whatever, and, like, your brain doesn't know how to compute that information. If you can find a way of creating a scent in the brain without that scent needing to be present, then you have solved the problem of that a lot of these gadgets face which is the need to keep supplying parts or ingredients for them okay but when you say immersive scent experience i mean i've been on a tour of brighton sewers i'm guessing you're not talking that kind of thing actually you would be surprised a lot of the people who are specializing in creating these experiences aren't just seeking to create something that's necessarily pleasurable it's a lot about storytelling it's about making you feel like you're having a very vivid experience for example tasha who we're going to speak to today has been working with london docklands museum to create scents that transport you to the past Mm. so you can more viscerally experience what it might have been like to be in a particular setting or living a particular life a lot of the people who are working on this there's there's some really interesting brains there's a woman called olivia jesler uh, who runs futureofsmell.com she is working with massive brands like dior johnson and johnson l'oreal so this isn't just small museums or tiny creative artists who are experimenting Big brands with big money are recognising that using the evocative and provocative power of smell can help to create an experience, but also can help to create ties between a person and a product that makes them much more likely to buy it. All of which, very excitingly, means I'm going to get something uh, to put up my nose. (laughs) (laughs) Because normally when you bring me something to sniff, it is in our Christmas episode and it is jock straps and and things that smell of funny. But it's going to be different this time, I'm assured. Most pheromones are based on things like that, aren't they? And like deer glands and stuff. I mean, I'm improvising, Tasha, but you're the expert. What have you got for us? We have some interesting smells here today. We've got a lovely variety for you to try, all of which have been used in a gallery or a museum or a project that I've worked on recently. So this scent that we're all wafting under our nostrils is used in an exhibition that's currently on at the Welcome Collection in London, and it is uh, a smell that is meant to provoke uh, tranquility. You know, it's so interesting how words affect what you think, isn't it? Because before you said tranquility, I was thinking it's a bit grassy and meadowy. And then as soon as you said tranquility, I was thinking, oh, is it a bit oceany? Alex, what are you getting? I, to me, it smells green. Yeah. M- mossy. I feel like I'm on a walk. Yeah, yeah, I know that what you mean. that makes sense? It yes, smells yeah. muddy. It smells outdoorsy. Mm-hmm. Not in an unpleasant way. Not in a farmyard no no exactly yeah no it's not uddery is it no 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 okay so tasha i mean you guys have very good noses and i mean also i'm gonna say that i got this spot on this is the (laughs) smell of the forest floor that is what it is yeah it's particularly based so it's a 
commissioned by an artist called Crystal Labasse, who does these huge photographs of ancient woodlands. And this is in particular based on the forest floor of an ancient woodland, one of the oldest ones in Japan. And it's where they coined the idea of forest bathing. Don't you pretend suddenly, Alex, that just because you've been to Japan once, this suddenly is resonating. <laughs> twice. I heard twice, what that sound suddenly. was. Ah, oh, Japan, yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but yeah, now you mention it, forest floor is a good name for it, definitely. What is it actually that's giving me the smell that you're going to tell me it's some chemical compound? I mean, there's multiple things in here. It's a very complex blend, but one of the key ingredients is something called petrichor or geosamine. And it's an organic compound that is released uh, by the earth after it rains. So it's that smell the earth releases after it rains. Yeah, that totally is. Okay, what's next? So this one has been turned into a candle, but it is also used in an installation that's at the Welcome Collection, and it is part of their permanent collection. So it's actually on show at the gallery. It will be there for at least 10 years. So, hold on, when you say on show... So the first one I showed you, the scent there fills the entire exhibition space, so it is like you're immersed in it. This one I'm showing you now is part of a sculpture where you do have to go up quite close to be able to smell it, and it says on the label, this is a scented sculpture. Okay, I guess scented sculptures kind of counts as a thing people are going to see, specifically for the smell, yeah. Also, because we're talking about emotional experiences here and storytelling, the delivery of the scent affects the intimacy of the story I suppose if you walk into Mm. a room and it's all around you then that's going to make you feel one way if you have to get right up close to something and really bury your face in it to to experience that effect then that is going to convey a different type of feeling so it's not just about the smell it's about how it reaches you okay so it's in a candle pot but I'm not going to read the label Mm -hmm. here goes oh it's chocolate I think it's not an it's not um it's not like a planty smell and it's not a body smell. Full disclosure, I do know what this one is. Okay. But I haven't inhaled this before and I'm finding it slightly disconcerting. Okay, well that that disturbs me while I'm putting up my nose based on you saying that. But to me, that smells like chocolate and a bit soapy. This smell is meant to be the smell of human breast milk. Wow. <laughs> I mean, how do you research that, may I ask? So I did go and smell lots of breast milk. Yeah. So I went to the Hearts Milk Bank, which is a um, milk bank that provides milk for premature babies and babies where their mothers can't breastfeed them for one reason or another. They gave us loads of samples, me and the, and the perfume house called CPL Aromas, who I collaborate with to create the scents. And they got out loads of samples for us and we had a sniff along. And then uh, they even said, oh, it actually smells different when it's, uh, mm. when it's warm. So they went and warmed it up for us. And when they came back, I smelt the first warm sub. I had a very physical reaction to warm breast milk because we've all probably experienced it at some point whether from our own childhoods or from other people you know it's part of being human it's the original superfood Mm. so there is an innate familiarity there which is quite uh, raw and primal I'm now wondering whether it's reminding me in any way of lying in bed next to a lactating wife See, I can't work out with this one whether I am inflicting my preconceptions upon what I'm smelling Mm. because I knew this was breast milk. So I got that sweetness and that chocolatiness that you reported. But to me, it also smells slightly sicky and a bit cloying. Mm. It's like it's on the turn ever so so slightly. Okay, should we try another? Let's carry on our sniffing adventure. (laughs) Ooh, this smells like men. (laughs) <laughs> she says as I stick it right up my nostril <laughs> uh, It's menthol I would say It smells like And it is masculine scent, I agree 
but, but in the sense of like classic Cartier, but also slightly BOE as well. Like it is, yeah, it's got that um, rough. It's quite hard to find the vocabulary, isn't it, to describe scent? Yeah, so we don't have a lot of words to describe scent in the English language. So we use other words. We use colours, we use textures. Mm. Saying a scent is brittle says more about it than saying, oh, it smells sweet or fragrant. You know, that's a too vague a word. It's a bit like when you read wine menus. It's more poetic. You know, this reminds me of a walk in the woods and a blustery day. But this is basically Russell Crowe after a workout, isn't it, is what it smells like. You get Cartier, I get vintage cars. It smells metallic Mm. to me, like old rust or something like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so this is a scent that i created for london craft week for an installation called the cedar in the sea it's actually interesting what you said about making you feel on edge because actually one of the main components in this is cedar wood which is meant to promote calm it was inspired by a man called william astor and he was a very anxious stressed man and so he carved his office out of cedar wood that smell is now gone because it was built in the 1890s so this is the smell i introduced back in to sort of evoke some of that history, to add the layered histories back into the space. One of the compounds in there is something called ISO-E Super, which is a perfume accord, which means it's a blend not found in nature, it's a synthetic accord that is found in a lot of male perfumes now. It's also got something called Cascalone in it, which again is a accord that's in a lot of male perfumes. I can't remember whatever the Marks and Spencer one's called that you get for Christmas from your, from your nan. It's that, isn't it? What they've had for like 50 years, that male scent from M&S. It smells a bit like that. Anyway, uh, right, let's do one more. Thanks. This is fun, by the way. Have you ever done this just as like a dinner party for someone? Never for a dinner party, but actually, funnily enough, in my job, I do quite a lot of guided smellings because we don't use our nose on its own very much. Sorry, this is rank. Like, as you're talking, I'm just like, oh, what's that thing under my nose? (laughs) Yeah, so this is a smell that's uh, been used for an exhibition. Oh, God. At the Museum of London Docklands, so it's uh, a smell of the docks in the (laughs) 1960s. Yeah, you're telling me. I feel like I can smell old pubs in the 1980s and treacle, like black treacle. <laughs> yeah. It's really rank, it's Tasha. Old. It's really, really <laughs> it horrible. It smells like nasty and old shit. We're in your nice open plan house <laughs> <laughs> and you've progressively given us worse and worse smells. What is it? So it is a blend of things like coffee, tea, tobacco, um, but also like hessian sacks, concrete floors. It's meant to be quite an industrial smell. It's making me feel woozy just having it near my nose, actually. <laughs> You can tell these hands have never been anywhere near a dock, can't you? (laughs) I'm just not at home. But also, I feel like if I was in a warehouse by a dock, then I'd accept it in a way that I can't in in an indoor environment. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you were in a warehouse with a big open door and you could see the river, then you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, a lot of scent is context-dependent, isn't it? Mm. It feels more fitting when we're experiencing it within a particular environment. Anything up my nose is nice that isn't a lateral flow test at the moment. That's just that's what I'm used to sticking up there recently. I've got to say it was it's scary with COVID as well, being a perfume or someone who works with scent rather. I really didn't couldn't lose my sense of smell, I wouldn't be able to work. Mm. During COVID I ended up working uh, a lot in the alcohol industry because we were all drinking quite a lot. <laughs> so I did lots of things where I would do uh, perfume masterclasses matching to cocktails, I'd post scents to people's homes and sort of tell historical stories through scents in the post. Um, and actually, even after COVID and during, scent was actually one of the things people really craved. We'd been amongst our own smell, our own houses for so long. I don't know if anyone else noticed that going out of your home, people smelled different. You noticed the way that people smell. You noticed being in an alien environment. Um, and actually then smell was one of the things we all became more sensitive to during COVID. So it was really fun to do virtual things during COVID and post smells to people's homes. 
There was a bit of research done by a company called Firminic, um, who did a global study and showed that 56% of people agreed that since the pandemic, they appreciate scent more. Mm. So not only is there more technology and more unusual applications, Ollie, there's more demand from people for these scent experiences. Tasha, thank you. Absolutely fascinating. Alex, though, really, for most people listening to this, you know, it's one thing if you are going to museums based in London and you're the sort of person who would go to a sensory experience in the evening for a fun night out. But for your average person listening to this, where do you think they're going to encounter this stuff? I think it's going to hit our homes in two particular ways. First of all, virtual reality. Oh, God, you've been speaking to Ollie, haven't you? Well, remember when you did that Raspberry Dream Labs sensory, sexual, sensual VR experience? Do that I? Horrible thing that I made you and Ollie do. Erotic experience of the decade. <laughs> well, that featured some sense with with lesser rather than greater success, I'd say. Mm. I think that area of technology is going to get a lot more sophisticated. Oh, meta. Yeah. I, I, Are we going to have headsets with scent dispensaries in them? Or other ways of experiencing smell. Ultimately, I think it's going to be more neurological, but that's that's talking way in the future. But also, I think that in an increasingly digitized world, people are looking for new ways to save their memories. We already have photographs. We already have writing. But we know that smell is one of the most immediately emotion-provoking senses that we have. Mm. I think being able to save a memory in smell so that those who come after you can will, can experience what it was like to be you yeah. in, in, in such a visceral way will be extremely popular. It's that classic thing, isn't it? Oh, my husband died last year and I can't stop sniffing his blazers. Is that right? Precisely. We already know how much this really speaks to people's hearts and how immediate that response is and how very powerful. I think actually harnessing that is going to appeal to a lot of people in future. Tasha did a project where she was trying to um, recreate the scent of somebody's home um, from the past when she actually got the person in questions, I think it was great granddaughter or something along those lines, uh, to, to smell this scent that she's created, this person burst into tears because it was so accurate and it gave them such a hit of, uh, of recollection. As humans, that's so powerful for, for us that it can't possibly be something that we don't investigate further. Okay, good job. Uh, Ollie, if you're listening, that's how it's done. Pages of research, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you've got a suggestion of a trend that Ollie can try out on a future edition of the show, then head to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click on the feedback form. And Alex, we should thank our sponsors. We've, we've flipped things around this episode because you're here. We uh, always do. Um, We're double-ended. We should thank the handy they are the world's most powerful sex simulation device for penises that's truly premium quality, easy to use and to clean, and all in all, from bell to ball, the creme de la creme of male creaming machines. From bell to ball, I love it. <laughs> if you want to try the supreme male masturbation device, uh, we have a special code as well you can use to get, what is it, free shipping? Yes, you get free express shipping when you use the code FOXHOLE. Yes, that's F-O-X-H-O-L-E at the handy. Dot com and thanks again to them who knows in the future you might actually be able to smell my foxhole that is probably something they're going to work on isn't it i mean i don't know if you've been collaborating behind the scenes <laughs> on future product development but 
Yeah, the sex toy market is absolutely something where scents play a role. And I mean, you know, we know that from existing products, but you could imagine, couldn't you, if you're interacting with erotica, for example? Yeah, if you were using a VR headset and a machine like the Handy, you could not only feel and see and hear the action, but you could even like inhale somebody's uh, bumholio. The ever-fragrant Alex Fox there. We'll see her again later. Still to come, you will meet Guy Babcock. Don't Google his name before you hear the interview. Uh, But first, our record of the month. It's the new one from Foles. It's called Wake Me Up, and it's out now. In a world where everyone is just one web search away, it really matters what happens when people type your name into Google. But how easily can that information be manipulated? That's what we're discussing today. And a warning, the conversation goes to some dark places and includes references to child abuse. My guest today, Guy Babcock, lives in Oxfordshire and works in IT. But back in the 90s, when our story begins, he was in Ontario, Canada, where his parents owned a real estate franchise called Remax. And it was a real family business. My mother was the broker because she'd been selling real estate for quite a long time. My father had come from banking and so he was doing more of the legal side. And myself, I joined to sort of on the computerized side and I also helped, you know, I was running the payroll checks and doing all that sort of stuff. My mother was primarily in charge of recruiting agents because you have a bit of a turnover with agents. People come and go. I mean, over the course of how long we owned the company, we probably had at least, you know, three to four hundred agents at any one point of time. In 1991, Guy's family recruited Nadir Attis to work as an estate agent. In a firm of hundreds of employees, she quickly gained recognition for her ability to do deals. We used to have sort of awards for, you know, how much business she did in a year, and she got to what's called the 100% Club, which is a top award to say that she's, you know, doing lots of business and lots of transactions. But then what happened is one day, um, got a call from a, a seller who was trying to sell her property and it hadn't sold. And she said, I don't understand why real estate agents keep showing up at my door trying to show my house. She says, it's not for sale anymore. Hmm. It didn't sell. I had it listed with Nadir Addis, and it didn't sell. The listing is expired, and I don't understand why people are showing up at the door. We went and we checked the listing, and um, it showed it was still for sale. So we pulled the actual documents, and what had happened is it had been for sale, and that 
it hadn't sold expired. And then there was what's called an extension that had been signed to say, you know, I want to keep it for sale for another period. But when we checked the signatures, we realized the signatures on the original contract and the signatures on the extension didn't match. And then we checked and we found some more that had done the same thing. Now, when we talked to her, the dear Addis, she indicated that the vendor had told her to do that, but they couldn't be bothered to sign it. So they just asked her to sign it. Mm. You know, this person was saying they hadn't agreed to it. They hadn't asked for it. Mm. So we uh, terminated her. Were you the party to that decision? Yes, uh, we so, sort of had a, my mother, father and myself met and decided what we were going to, to do about that. And we decided it was too much of a liability, you know. So we terminated our contract at that point for cause, basically saying, you know, we can't allow this. And did, did you deliver that to her? My father's actually the one who told her, I believe at the time. Now, the other thing that happened is I know she had been looking to maybe move over to another company, another Remax office at the time. And the manager over there had asked us for a reference, which, of course, we couldn't give. So I think that also probably made her a bit angry at us as well, because, you know, we just we, we you know, we're not going to give a positive reference when, you know, this is the circumstances of why she had to leave. But you presumably thought actually she will be able to get a job somewhere else because she's good at what she does well she did that day she joined a different remax that was in the city beside hamilton then for six years guy and his family forgot all about nadir attis until my mother um, died in uh, 1998 of cancer and in the beginning of 1999, we suddenly got a campaign of letters that were sent out to my mother's parents, my grandparents, and I think maybe my sister and my aunt and all sorts of different people. And they were just horrendous letters. We're talking about the parents of my mother who've lost their child, and they were being sent a letter basically celebrating the fact that she was dead. Mm you know, and saying terrible things about, you know, her body and the grave and all sorts of things like that. It was just horrendous. And then what happened, uh, probably within a week of that, where my father lived, all the neighbors in that neighborhood received letters anonymously saying that my father was a peeping Tom and to watch out for him. He was hiding in the bushes, looking through their windows and things like this. And were they stamped and addressed, or had someone gone around putting it through the... No, they were all stamped and and addressed. Okay. Yes. How long did it take you to work out those were probably from her? My father thought it was her right off. He was like, it has to be. Like, who else has ever threatened me or or anything? So he was 100% positive. And of course, don't forget, this is in 1999. She had left us in 1993, so we're talking six years. And you'd not cross paths at all? No. No. Because... We couldn't prove exactly who it is. That made it even worse. Mm. Because you're thinking, I'm sure that's who it is. But, you know, is there someone else out there that hates us so much that they could do that? Because to me, it was just over the top. Like, someone must really hate you to send the mother of someone who died, Mm. you know, a letter like that. But also, it's not as if you're public figures. It's not as if your mother dying was being reported in the national news. No. So it's, you know it's someone who knows you. 
Oh, it and had he's to been be watching so- the family. It had to be someone that, that knew us for sure. So did that make you unsettled? Did you yes, think, where very, is this very unsettled. And that's what was bothering you. You're thinking, I'm probably going to have to live with this for my life. I'm never going to know who hated us so much that they would do something like that. Decades go by. In 2002, the family business is sold. Guy moves to England to study at Oxford Brooks. He marries. He has a son. Then, in September 2018, he gets a phone call from his father. It was a weekend, and we'd gone out with friends. I think we'd just gone to the pub for Sunday lunch or something. we come back, and I get this frantic phone call from Canada, and he's clearly quite upset, and he was part of a a seniors club. How old is he now? Uh, He's 89 right now, yeah. He said uh, a lot of the directors of the board got an email saying, I think you better know that one of your members, John Babcock, has sons who are both pedophiles. And he'd gone online to look, and sure enough, he'd you know, put in our name and then you know, all of this, these different postings saying that we were pedophiles and photos of us and that uh, were, were on the Internet. What did he say to you? He was just really up, uh, upset. He he was basically saying, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, I can't believe this is this is terrible. And so, of course, I initially wanted to keep him calm. So I'm sort of, oh, it's okay. You know, it's probably just a scam of some sort. Someone's doing that, and then they're probably going to ask us for money to take it away or something. You'd like that. had no sniff of this until this point. No, you'd never self googled and found anything I, like this. I never. No, I never thought to. <laughs> to Google myself, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think people normally do. I don't know. It's just not something I'd, I'd really think about because I don't really have a, a huge online presence. At that point, I had a Facebook account just to keep in, in touch with, you know, my um, school friends, but I didn't really post very much, you know, so I didn't really have a, much of a presence at all. So in that first conversation, are you already with him discussing where this might have come from? No, actually, at that point, we hadn't. He was very just upset about seeing it. So my main thought at that time was just to uh, calm him down and tell him, you know, it's okay, and I'll look at it. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it's just, you know, a scam or something like that, because, you know, he he was getting very upset about it. So, for, of course, then after I got off the phone with him, I went and looked up. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> it was horrendous, because the thing that was really bad when, when I would... Google myself is that, of course, uh, Google had changed the way its results look, that it puts images at the top. Mm. The person who'd done it had been clever enough to actually take images from my Facebook and my LinkedIn account and had put pedophile on the images. So when you'd come up, you'd see nothing but images of myself across the top with pedophile across them all. How did that feel when you first saw that image? I, I, I was just... Oh, I think I just felt sick to my stomach. It was, it was, it was just so visual. It just, it's just, it's overwhelming because it's so visual. I and think. it's Google. It's the Oracle, isn't it? It's what you ask any question to. What's the weather going to be like in Oxfordshire tomorrow? Yes. What you know? Who is Guy Babcock? And the answer is pedophile. And everybody's using it. And that's the thing. It's not just you know, is a friend going to find it? You know, is work going to find it? And also having a young son as well. My other thought was, you know, other parents and stuff like that. If they, you know, happen to Google me for whatever reason and see this sort of thing, like, you know, I don't want him to be impacted in any way by whatever's going on. 
Your heart must have been racing. Oh, I, I guess despair is the way I would think about it, because in my mind at the same time, particularly since I have an IT background, I'm thinking, how can I possibly fix this? Hmm. I'm the sort of person who often, you know, if, if there's an issue, I want to fix it. I'm a fixer. And I look at this as, I don't know how I can possibly fix this. What happened when you click the links? Uh, well, we'd take you to the sites, you know, and, and then they'd have these, you know, stories. I've read some of these stories. You can still find them online. Here's one. Guy Babcock is a child molester and dangerous paedophile in Oxfordshire, England, United Kingdom. Here's another. Guy Sanderson Babcock lures children on the internet pretending to be a preteen. This piece of shit is a predator. This cretin has a long history of grooming and sexually abusing adolescent boys. There's more. Guy Babcock arranged to meet several boys under 14 for sex at hotels across the country and had been speaking to at least 39 decoys online at the time of his arrest. And just for good measure, Guy Babcock is a racist piece of shit. Like all sorts of crazy made up stories. The URLs were like, you know, um, cheatersexposed.com and padgirls.com. They're, they're sites where people go and post, you know, stuff because they're, they're mad at someone else, you know. Well, my boyfriend cheated on me, so I'm going to go to Cheaters Exposed and put your photo and stuff on there. And of course, you know, you're clicking on the things and, you know, it's coming up saying, do not ask us to remove it. If you tell us to remove it, we'll never remove it, blah, blah, blah. But click here and for a fee, will help restore your reputation. Wow. And sometimes it's 2,000 US dollars. Hold on. So these tawdry revenge sites are monetizing the people that are being slandered? Absolutely. That's really shocking. Yeah. And the, the numbers involved are shocking too, because even though that's a really horrible business model, if they were charging $50 to remove a post, yeah. that would be within you know the affordability of most people being slandered in that way. You're saying for you to actually pay up, as they're asking, would cost you over $200,000 across all these sites. Actually, I currently have s over 640 posts against me. Wow. So I think, I think we're talking a million. <laughs> <laughs> so to come to your question then of how do you fix it, if the business models behind these companies is so screwy and unfair and they don't have just a polite policy of we will drop this story about you because it's untrue are there any other methods available to you because i imagine these websites must be based in russia or china or something no actually most of the sites are based in the u.s really and in fact uh most of them actually have an office or they're listed as arizona which what? has the least restrictive rules of these companies. They're, almost every one you go on, if you actually click on the link and it talks about removals, the first thing it does is it quotes Section 230 of the, I believe the U.S., it's called the Communication Decency Act, which is a very funny name. <laughs> but basically, Section 230 makes it that the publisher of comments is not responsible for the comments. So that's the technology that underpins... Facebook, I guess, right? So anyone yes. can say something on a post and it's not the responsibility of the company. That's right. So they're saying that they want that so that people can, you know, speak their opinions yeah. without feeling like they're being censored. But there's no provision for something being completely untrue. You can't no. do anything about it. What I can do about it, they're saying, is that I need to go after the author. But of course, the site allowed the author to be anonymous. 
So I, how can I go after the author if I don't know who the author is? After I Googled myself, after my father had called, I went and I, I started Googling other family members. So that's when I realized it was my father, not only my father, but it was my uh, brother's wife, my sister. What was it saying about them? Basically, the women, it was normally that they're thieves or scammers. And for the men, it was always that they're pedophiles. Even my, my sister's son, who at that time would have only been around 18, was also labeled that oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the worst thing to be called on the internet anyway. But yes. particularly at 18. Yeah, you're just starting out and, you know, and it's a little different for me at, at, at an older age, you know, when you're sort of established, it's one thing, but you're young and you're just going to be going out of school and you need to go look for jobs, you know, because I'd say most HR departments, they're, they're probably Google just about everybody that they interview, right? Right. Yeah. And now if you've got, you know, 10 candidates or 20 candidates and you come across something like this, you're not going to bother trying to figure out is it real, is it not real. You're just going to toss it. So what we did is uh, we compiled a, a, a document. So we went looking for all the links we could find. We searched all our family members and we documented absolutely everything. I think our document was like 100 pages. And then we decided we'd go to the police. Can I just say, this all sounds very diligent. And it sounds like you're doing an incredible amount of research to present a case. But on a guttural emotional level, was there a part of you that just wanted to put a Facebook post up right away saying, by the way, contrary to what you've read online, I'm not a paedophile? Were you able to hold that in? Actually, I think my reaction was the opposite. I, you know, deleted my Facebook account. I deleted all my accounts. You know, if I could unplug the internet, I would have, right? It's mm. just the big concern for me was, you know, what do I do with, with friends that I know? Do I tell them? Do mm. I not tell them? Mm. Right. Because, you know, it's like the, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, I don't really want to bring the subject up. Mm. I don't want to get them. You know, if I go to you and said, whatever you do, don't Google my name. What are you probably going to do? Mm. <laughs> You're going to go and Google my name. Right. Mm. So it's it was I was a real challenge for me. And I'm thinking at that time, that you know, I just hope that nobody I know has any reason to put my name into Google. Did you also worry about... If you like the particles of smoke, they might start sniffing for because you know as soon as you say that word and associate it with you, you do fit the profile of a cliche of what people think. Oh, he's a middle-aged white guy and he lives in a little <laughs> village and he's very discreet and he doesn't really have a big social profile and he works in tech. I mean, it's all terrible stereotyping, <laughs> but it's you could see that people might start putting things together and think maybe that fits. I mean, the people in the, uh, certainly in the village uh, in is thought you know they won't. I don't think they'd believe it. But there's always going to be a doubt in anything. Like if, if you had a child, you're still, even though you may not believe it, you're still going to be careful, right? Yeah. Like I would be too. <laughs> you know, in reverse, if I, if, if I saw that of someone, I would immediately, you know, be cautious around them. And that was my concern was that, you know, if I mention it, I don't really want to bring the subject up because there, there's, even though they may believe me, there's always going to be 
a little seed of doubt with anybody, right? You know, it's why is someone saying this about you? I don't understand that. Because that's not normal behavior, right? Why would someone go and accuse you of being that? Even if it's a lie, he must have done something awful to me. Yeah, exactly. It's the same as the letter, isn't it? Exactly. You must have done something awful because nobody would want to do that. Yeah. And about two weeks after uh, my father had called, I got a phone call from a close friend of mine from the village that we had been living in. And my friend, you know, he started the conversation, you know, we've known each other for a long time and we're good friends. And, you know, and he's like, I got approached by one of the other parents at the school that apparently they've online seen, you know, this stuff. Mm. And I was just, my heart just dropped. It was like, my worst nightmare it was literally the worst come thing. true. Yeah. It was the one thing I was I was worrying about the most, and it actually happened. Because your son at this point is nine. Yes. He's nine. Not only that, but we'd recently moved from that village, and it was just before Halloween, and my son had requested that we go back to the village on Halloween to do trick-or-treating with all the other kids. So I'm like, I definitely can't go back. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be walking around in the dark with all the kids and stuff like that if, you know, if that's the gossip in the village, you know, which is, you know, potentially. So it was just, it was, I have to say, it was probably the worst day I ever had. It was like my worst nightmare had come true. Did you call the school? What I did is I spoke to my friend and I you know, explained what was going on. So he went and then spoke to the, the mother who claims that she hadn't talked to anybody else yet at that point. So I, I left it at that point. I mean, it shows how quickly gossip like that will spread, doesn't it? Because probably one concerned parent does mention it to one other person, but people can't hold that kind of information in. No, I don't know. I, did, I wasn't approached by anybody else, but yes, you're right. That was my concern is that once one knows, then... They're going to mention it to another, and, 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 it's, and it's going to happen. So that was my, my biggest concern at that point. What happened with the police then? Well, which police force did you go to? Because your brothers are in Canada still. Well, my brother-in-law went to the Montreal police, but he did, couldn't seem to get past the desk sergeant. They basically didn't seem to understand. They're like, well, you know, people say bad things about other people, you know, just, you know, don't worry about it. I have to say the UK police took it seriously. Did you get any sense that they were thinking, oh, but this is what a pedophile would say, we need to be careful? No, I, I got the feeling they did They did believe me. Because uh, you got and turned yourself in and said, this is happening. This is what's happening. And I showed, you know, all the documents we had. And I showed, you know, it's not just me. It's, you know, my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law, my father, my, you know, mm. like, obviously, it's all of us. So, you know, you know. You wouldn't expect it would be the whole family. So they took it seriously and they took a report. The police officer actually said he was, you know, quite interested in the case. This would be, you know, interesting to try and find who's behind this. I was very worried, not only about what was being shown online and with my friends, but even for my family's safety. Because around that same time, there was two articles in the BBC about these vigilante groups that had gone after the wrong person. Mm. And I thought, you know, if they look at this stuff, you know, they may not be too bright. They may think it, it's, it's real. I don't want them showing up at my door, particularly if I'm not home and my, you know, my wife and nine-year-old is at home at the time. So I put in, you know, CCTV, you know, I made sure the front gate, you know, for the driveway is always locked. I have a large dog in the back now. <laughs> Did you really, you got the dog for that reason? Yeah. I even asked the officer if it's possible to get a gun permit. And I personally am very 
anti-gun. <laughs> but I just, I was just concerned, you know, mm-hmm. what if someone shows up at my door? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was scary. Still to come, reputational management, the right to forget, and deep in one of the blog posts smearing him, Guy gets a blast from the past. That's after this. Man fans, if on occasion I make reference to a specific piece of foreign culture that you just wished you could watch right now if only it weren't for those darn geoblocks, then may I heartily recommend NordVPN. NordVPN allows you to access TV shows, news websites, sports and movies from over 59 different countries by changing your virtual location. You can even pay for streaming platforms at a lower price than the one at home. Plus, it's great for using on public Wi-Fi systems like in airports and cafes to keep your data and emails secure. All without slowing down your connection. Just switch it on, and away you go. Head to nordvpn.com slash man, that's M-A-N-N, or use the code man, M-A-N-N, to get 73% off your two-year plan, plus four bonus months for free. But be quick, because this offer is for a limited time only. That's nordvpn.com slash M-A-N-N. Ollie Peart here, a.k.a. The Zeitgeist. I may be away having a baby, but you didn't think you'd be able to go a month without hearing me tell you about the best way to trim your balls, did you? Because that's exactly what I'm going to do now. You see, Christmas is just around the corner, and Manscaped have decided to celebrate early by offering you, yes you, 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code MAN. That's M-A-N-N. And if you're looking for the perfect gift for your gonads, the Performance Package 4.0 is the way to go. I have it right here, and it has got everything you need to give your nuts a Christmassy spruce up before the festivities really begin. As well as some silky smooth boxes, you'll get the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver, an anti-chaving ball deodorant and moisturiser, and a toner, which smells like Santa's sack itself. All nice and lovely. And of course, the gift that keeps on trimming, the Lawnmower 4.0. This thing can chew through the thickest of wickets, trust me. And with its proprietary skin-safe technology, you're less likely to nick your nuts, which is a good thing. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to manscaped.com and use the code MAN for 20% off and free shipping. That's M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Let's dive back into Guy's story now. With hundreds of posts on the internet claiming he's a paedophile and the websites hosting them, mostly based in Arizona, not only refusing to remove the stories, but wanting to charge him for the privilege, he's turned to the police. And one sympathetic officer in the UK has asked him to collate as much evidence as he can. So what I did is I went back and I Googled myself. Now, I'd already captured like the first two pages of results, but I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be as thorough as I can. I'll keep going. So I kept going through the results and basically documenting everything. And about when I got to about page 10 of results, which nobody would normally go to, I came across a link to a blog. Now, the reason why it was so low on the results is because the actual page wasn't about me at all. But what had happened is in the comments for the blog article... Hmm they'd put in a post against me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when I looked at that post, there was actually a small photo 
Now, it was very small, but as I looked at it, I kind of thought, that looks sort of familiar. And I hovered over it, and it show, then pops up and shows a larger image. And sure enough, it was Nadir Addis, who I knew from long ago. And I remember seeing it, and I just sat there, honestly, for two minutes, staring at the photo in complete shock. I was like, I can't believe I've actually figured out who it is. Mm. Everything started going through my mind. I started thinking, this makes sense to me. This puts everything in place. Now I know it was her with the letters because I'd been left with that mystery from 25 years ago. I think it was her, but I don't know it was her. I then Googled her and I came across a blog article by a lawyer in Toronto who I didn't know who was talking about the fact she was in this huge court battle with Nadir Addis and then described how she was being attacked online, not only her, but her daughter and other relatives. And when I read that, it was like, that is us. Like mm. the article read, it's exactly what we were going through. The fact that it's, you know, my brother and my sister and, mm. and cousins and nephews, it's all the exact same thing. So I sent an email to my brother-in-law and said, look, you got to talk to me before you go to the police. I know who it is. This is who it is. And here's a link to this, this blog by the lawyer to show we're not the only ones. I had to go pick up my son. And on my way uh, back, I got a phone call from my brother-in-law going, we have to talk. He says, I called the lawyer and it turns out they're going to court tomorrow. And we basically have the smoking gun because right. I actually have an actual posting with her photo on it, right? Did you want to get involved in that? Because there's two sides to you, I guess, when you're dealing with this. At this point, you're so deep in it. Of course, you'd rather this had never happened at all and it's awful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's got the narrative of a thriller at this point, hasn't it? Last minute court document, you're going to be part of a thing. <laughs> do you, were you, were you, was there an element of you that thought this is quite exciting? I can actually do something about this. I think it was exciting that I felt that I'd figured out who it was, and yes, maybe we could somehow put a stop to it, which is what I really wanted to do. But you're right. On the other half of me, you're thinking, okay, if I now get involved and she's now aware that I'm involved, is mm. it going to get worse? Mm. So that was a real concern for me. But I think the thought was, you know what, it's never going to stop if we don't do something about it. What did the police do at this point? There's enough there, isn't there, for them to at least interview her? On the uh, UK police side, basically, once we'd identified who it was, it was decided that the crime was committed in Canada because that's where she is. Even though one of the victims is here, the crime is committed in Toronto where it's being posted from. Which makes sense but is so frustrating. It is. So they basically said, you know, we'll cooperate as much as we can. The officer actually came to my house and he sat here and said, if she was here, she'd be arrested by now. But she's not. So I, it's up to them to do it. So what do you do at this point? Do you just despair? Or do you think there's still more we can do? I think I felt positive at first finding the lawyers because... We're not alone in this. So it, it was nice in that way. And it seemed like they were working on a process to try and get it resolved. But then when I realized that they've been dealing with her for years and she's still posting against them, mm. then it became more despair. Like, you know, is this going to even make a difference? What happened in the court process? So what I th think happened at one point, the judge had put out a... Uh, 
decree, basically, that she's not allowed to post against them as part of the process. Although, interesting, that's about the time that then she decided to start going after us. Mm. So I don't know whether it was that at that time she said, okay, well, I won't do that because there is the judge is saying I can't and I could go to jail for contempt. And then instead looked back in her past to other people who she feels has done her wrong. Because it wasn't just us. When I started searching, I realized it can't, it's probably not just us. It's got to be other people back in the real estate industry in that city. So I started thinking back, okay, 25, 30 years ago, (laughs) who were the top agents? Mm. And I started putting their names in. And more times than not, I would find them as well. I would just like randomly pick a name of someone I know that was a top agent back in the market 30 years ago, even if they're deceased now. (laughs) And when I would Google them, sure enough, exact same stuff with them and their families. So they went to court and then we joined a fourth one to also uh, try to get her to stop. The judgment came out and the judge basically found that there's enough reasonable enough proof that she is the the poster. And this is in Canada. This is in Canada. So this yes. is actionable. Yeah. And I remember listening to the judge as he was talking about the case and at one point he stopped and says, "I don't understand why the police haven't got involved at this point. Mm. I do not understand." Mm. It it makes no sense. So what was the conviction that was secured against her? So the judgment that came out basically said that she's the poster. It gave those of us in the lawsuit basically ownership of the post so that we have the legal right to go and ask for it to be removed because even though she's the author, we own them. But this is just in Ontario. The problem is it's all in the United States that these these websites are Mm. and they won't recognize the decision from uh, the united states won't recognize the verdict of a canadian court no did she get any custodial sentence she actually was put in jail for i believe it was 17 days for contempt of court because she'd upset the judge quite a few times what we'd found out and this was mainly uh, from the lawyers was that she was actually living in a homeless shelter and basically she would get up every morning and go down to the public library and sit at a public terminal in the library, and she would be there all day until it closed at night. Wow. Every day. That's what, that was all she did, is basically lived at the homeless shelter and then spent her day on a public terminal in the library, posting. Was there an element of that story that made you suddenly feel more sympathetic towards her? I mean, that's a very sad life to live, isn't it? And it sounds like one, you don't want to diagnose, but that sounds like a mental illness of some kind. I don't feel sorry for her, no. I, 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 I think she, she's the author of her own, you know, her own world. You know, I feel like when she was with us, I gave her, we gave her lots of chances. We were very supportive. I remember my parents were always, you know, trying to give her suggestions or trying to, you know, to help her, you know, be a better agent. Well, help is the thing, isn't it? So it's kind of like, you know, I mean, it's so easy for me to do this because I can be objective because I'm not in the middle of it being called a pedophile. Yeah. But... Obviously, there's two routes to stop this happening, isn't it? One is the technological one, which you're pursuing, and the other one is for her to get help and stop doing it herself. Yes, yes. And so from that pragmatic point of view, even, it's like there are a part of you that's just thinking, if she got better, this wouldn't be an issue. Yes. But, I mean, up to this point, she still won't acknowledge, even with the judgment, that it is her. Oh, really? She's still denying that it's her. Okay. 
that she feels there's a conspiracy against her. We're aware of 150 victims at this point. And she is saying that all 150 victims are in a conspiracy against her. And she basically goes after anybody who's associated with with anyone. So do you think we're at risk by covering this story? Absolutely. That's what you'll anticipate is going to happen now as a result of being on this show. Well, at the moment she's on probation, she's not allowed to go near a computer. So there's a risk, but whether it's going to happen or not, there's been quite a bit of media on it, I think. So this one might slip by unnoticed? You might slip by unnoticed. Because, so we had the judgment on January 28th. On January 31st, three days later, the New York Times article came out with me on the front page about this whole story. And then a short time after that, she was arrested by the Toronto police and was then let out on bail, but she's not allowed to post. And several weeks after the article, suddenly we started getting posted. I have, I think, 40 posts against me around the beginning of February. But the editor of the New York Times, her daughter, had like 80 posts against her. Wow. And clearly, you know, the... Being the daughter of the editor shows where it's coming from because I don't know that person. I, I wouldn't even know the name to see it. But mm. this is, you know, there's a relationship there. Now, shortly after that, I, I did do an interview with a paper in Canada, and the reporter who interviewed me, I said to him, I said, you have to realize that if you put out an article on me, the odds are you're going to be attacked as well. Just so, you know, because I felt a bit guilty about, you know, I want you to be sure you realize, you know, what's entailed when you when you interview me. And he'd just recently done a article on uh, a mob hit. So he was like, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, I just did an article on a mob hit. I didn't, you know, this doesn't bother me. When the article came out, there was no name on it. Hmm. So here's someone who's a reporter. <laughs> He's used to doing some, you know, high-profile stories. You know, even the last one was on the mafia. And uh, he was too afraid to put his name on the article. So for you, do you just have to reconcile yourself to the fact that when you Google your name, this stuff will always come up until... I was about to say until she has no access to computers, but even then, it's if you haven't managed to get the original post taken down, they're still there too, right? I probably fare a little better than the others because there's been some press on me. So I now have an online presence. So <laughs> Not a you, good one, but I have an online presence. So if you Google your name now, you get the front of the New York Times, which exactly. is you saying, I'm not a pedophile. Exactly. It's still associating your name with the word it, pedophile. Unfortunately, it is. But at least context. there's other contexts you know, that, that comes up as well. But the other victims don't have the luxury that I do. And that's the problem. Google has recently come out saying that they will remove links to sites that it's pay to remove. Extortion sites, basically. Mm-hmm. So sites that post stuff but say you can have it removed if you pay, they will delist those if you request it. So the, the websites are still allowed to exist under U.S. law, but yes. Google won't link to them. That's right. Okay. Which is still a ma- it's a major thing to do that. Now, yes. whether how successful that is, I, d- I don't know. 
because that's just something that we bec- become aware of. But these sites, yes, they still they still exist. It seems so ridiculous though that you have to go like on bended knee and say, "Please remove the." For a start, the image is your copyright if you posted yes. it to LinkedIn in the first place. And secondly, these are the biggest companies in the world you're talking about: mm-hmm. Google and Facebook yes. and Microsoft. Yes, there are people who are paid there to deal with this stuff. Yes. And it's a challenge for us because I'm just an individual. How can I take on a Google or a Microsoft or whatever? They're they're almost as large as a country, right? Now, when I first came across the post back in 2018, one thought I did have was, hey, you know what? I'm luckier than the rest of them. You know why? Because I live in Britain and I'm part of the GDPR. So I can go just do right to forget and get my stuff removed. So I went through the process and the first email I got back from Google was explaining that, you know, we don't make judgments on content. We're here just to index what's on the web. Because that's their standard knee-jerk response. Exactly. So I went back to them again and said, I'm being harassed. It's criminal harassment. Here's the police report number. Here's the police officer if you want to call him, etc. The second email that came back said, can you please tell us when you got out of jail and what your conditions for release were? <laughs> and I was just, you know, this is where despair comes in, because you're. this is the whole point. I'm not a criminal. So yes. I wrote back to them and said, this is why I'm asking you to remove it. I'm not a criminal. I'm a victim. But they're treating me like I'm a criminal, mm-hmm. that I'm supposed to give this information. So what I did after that is I, of course, there's a process where you can complain to a privacy commissioner here in the UK, a complaint against Google that they won't remove the stuff. And I heard back after about three months from the commissioner asking if it had been resolved. And miraculously, that same week, some of the links actually disappeared off of Google. (laughs) It was a decision, though, wasn't it, to put your head above the parapet and talk about this? Yeah, it was. I had to think about it at first, because You know, again, my reaction was I wanted to do the exact opposite. I wanted to hide. I removed all my social media presence. I don't really want to talk to anybody. I don't want to tell anybody. I just want to, you know, almost pretend it it hasn't happened because you you just feel so hopeless and helpless, you know. And and I'm a very private person, so it was a challenge for me. But then I thought it's something that we have to deal with. If there's going to be any change, people need to know about it. I I remember talking to my wife shortly after it all began, and I turned to her at one point and said, you know what, if people knew how easy it is to destroy someone online, they would be frightened, right? I didn't, I never occurred to me that how possible it was, you know, because we're not talking one post, we're talking, you know, last count, we were over 12,000 of her posts, and it can happen to anybody. Guy Babcock. And if you've got a story you would like to share on a future edition of the podcast, then please do reach out. We are at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just fill in the feedback form. Next up, we talk getting it up with Alex Fox. It can only be the foxhole after this. Right, time to talk about... 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. About sex, as we welcome back Alex Fox for the second time this episode. Twice a night, Fox, I'm going to call you now. I'm spit-roasting our listeners' ears, entering at both the top and the bottom of the show, like a double-ended <laughs> dildo of a human. This episode of The Foxhole, we're going to talk about erectile dysfunction uh, in association with MAC clinical trials. More about them later. But we know from our inbox, Alex, that this is an issue that a lot of men worry about, but including surprisingly young ones. Yeah, men worrying about their willies literally not being up to the job of entering somebody's inbox or otherwise providing pleasure is one of the things I'm contacted consistently about the most, which isn't really surprising because according to what research you read, it's estimated that about 4.3 million chaps in Britain are having trouble with their old traps at some point in their lives. Um, But yeah, I do hear from surprisingly young men. Um, There was a study done recently that showed that over a quarter of British men say that issues with gaining and maintaining an erection, which is what ED or erectile dysfunction officially is, have at some point affected their ability to be intimate with a partner. And 28% of those respondents were aged between 25 and 34. And it's not just a challenge for men either. I mean, obviously, you know, this affects everyone in a relationship, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the males that I get are from female partners concerned that the problem is down to them even yeah. though they're, the, the men in their lives are telling them no this this isn't because I don't fancy you if erectile dysfunction keeps happening it can be really difficult not to convince yourself that the issue does lay with your own either sexual skill or how much your partner is attracted to you. So what can the causes be? We spoke to someone on the show didn't we a couple of years ago who put his impotence down to pornography and said he was watching too much porn. There's a whole barrel of reasons. Everything from smoking, because nicotine causes um, the uh, blood vessels to constrict, making it tougher for blood to get to where it needs to be to pump everything up. Diabetes can be another cause. Um, If you're carrying more fat than is healthy or optimally healthy for your body type, then that can have an impact. Stuff like uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Ideally, men should be talking to their GP or a medical practitioner if they're experiencing a erectile dysfunction because problems with your flagpole not getting up can actually flag other health issues elsewhere but in particular with young men some of the most common causes I hear are nerves and anxiety and this can be Mm. about sex about a particular part of sex or it can just be more general and increasingly I'm hearing from blokes with body image issues where just getting naked or taking their clothes off in the first place is is causing them to be so anxious that it's that's getting in the way of what's happening in their pants when the pants come off um porn as you mentioned can be an issue for some folks it's contested whether porn addiction is officially a thing but we do know that some men who are watching porn in problematic ways so that they're they're watching 
more of it than is healthy for their personal lives or who have been conditioned by porn to, to expect sex to be a particular way and then feel either disappointed or underwhelmed or threatened when it turns out to be different that can interfere with their sexual function i guess also like how it's consumed like times of the day you know if you're someone who got into the habit of masturbating you know at times that weren't the times that you'd then be having sex i can imagine you know the mood just doesn't feel right then yeah so much of our sexual function is connected to habits really isn't it so if you've gotten yourself acclimatized to getting turned on at two in the afternoon which is perhaps when everyone in your house happens to be out for their lunch break or whatnot uh then maybe getting it on in the evening when the sun goes down your penis is going down with it I thought you were going to say for a moment there, which is perhaps the time when everyone in your house has a wank. <laughs> Even in your enlightened world, that doesn't feel like something people have scheduled across a household. I'm sure I read a piece of research a while ago that showed that um, peaks in internet usage spiked at particular times when people were watching ero- erotic material. Yeah, Boxing Day was a popular one. <laughs> Um, So what are the treatments then immediately? I mean, it's a brand, isn't it? But everyone just jumps to Viagra. It's so well established, you know, the blue pill. Especially if the causes are, as you say, potentially psychological. That doesn't seem like the obvious first step. What you use to treat ED really does depend on the cause. And sometimes you might need to take a variety of approaches. For example, if your problem is associated with anxiety or depression or uh, past trauma or just pure nerves, then a combination of medication that can help give you a leg up, a third leg up, if you will, plus some kind of therapy or counselling or um, a, a more psychological approach to help you feel more relaxed in a sexual setting. Those two things concurrently can work very well for a lot of people. But there are quite a lot of different treatments on the market, ranging from more manual stuff like vacuum pumps and rings where you suck the blood into your penis and then keep it there, a little bit like blowing up a balloon. Uh, At the extreme end of stuff for people who have real issues, there are uh, penile implants, so you can actually put a rod or an inflatable device inside, surgically implanted inside the peen. Yeah. Wow. That's a great party trick, isn't it? If you can just inflate at will. (laughs) In any situation, uh, it depends on whether what you're party or not. you're at, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can also get uh, treatments that deliver drugs directly to the penis via injection or urethral suppositories. Unfortunately, they will also induce tears to spring directly from your eyes. Um, testosterone replacement is also uh, an option for people if low testosterone is causing the problem. But for most blokes, treatment takes two main forms. The first being therapy. Um, People like Mojo are providing online courses to make that kind of thing a lot more affordable and accessible. Um, And pills. And there's about five or so main variants that you can get either uh, prescribed by your doctor or over the counter. And they all work in slightly different ways. But most are uh, what is called a phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitor or PDE5. The way that these work broadly is When you get turned on, your body produces a molecule called CGMP, and that stimulates an erection by increasing blood flow to the peen. Everything goes up. However, then an enzyme um, known as PDE5 usually then breaks that CGMP down, restricting blood flow again and causing the erection to subside. What those main five pills tend to do is block 
the action of PDE5. So all the chemicals you need for your erection to be sustained stick around longer and you've got more of a chance of staying hard for a prolonged period of time. Okay, so you do still need to be feeling aroused. You won't just suddenly get an erection unless you're feeling it. Well, this is a key thing. Some of them you pop them anywhere between half an hour to a few hours before you want to have sex. So you have to plan when you actually want to get jiggy. Others you take more regularly, which um, allow you to be a bit more spontaneous. But for all of those, you do have to be feeling horny for them to work. They won't just magic up an erection when you're feeling tragic in your brain. But there are problems with these over-the-counter pills, aren't there? Yeah, if you've got heart conditions um, or if you're on certain other medications, then you can't take them. Um, They're negatively affected by food. If you have a heavy meal, um, then you're not going to be able to as easily get hot and heavy later. It's such a shame because Jalfrezi laced with Viagra is my personal (laughs) favourite. For some people, they also have side effects, stuff like headaches, nausea, dizziness, hot flushes. But the real issue is that um, these pills, according to what study you look at, only really work for or are suitable for about 60% of men. So there's around 40% of people who just either can't take them or they're not performing as you'd hope. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's more than you'd expect, isn't it? I was quite surprised by that. I imagine that a lot of the reasons why people would be looking into new treatments is just to kind of make them better rather than give them more broad efficacy for people. But it really does seem like there are a lot of men Uh, for whom the existing solutions either aren't options at all or are very suboptimal. And one of those new things that's being developed is by Mac Clinical Trials, uh, who are working with us on this section today. So what are they looking at? They're running two trials at the moment, one for men just with erectile dysfunction and one for men with erectile dysfunction who also have mild depression. And they're using a new medication called IPED 2015. Uh, And this works in a very different way to the pills we've just discussed. It actually helps the dopamine signaling pathway in the brain that's involved in getting an erection. So rather than working peripherally on muscles and blood vessels around the penis it's actually working in the brain so interesting it's kind of like what we were talking about in the zeitgeist isn't it like how can you smell something when the smell isn't actually there well speaking of smells the neurotransmitter system that this is hoping to act upon is involved in all sorts of things from um, your cravings for coffee which obviously smells delicious your mood your level of arousal all sorts and as a kind of side note because of that that clinical trial's actually think that this this same compound might have applications in helping neurological pain although this is not their main focus i found that really interesting though because originally viagra itself was developed as a drug that was supposed to help with cardiovascular complaints and heart issues uh, and it was only noticed as a side effect that everybody on the ward where it was being tested had massive donkons so it was then reappropriated for use with erectile dysfunction and so mac are looking for people to enroll in these clinical trials aren't they? What What is the trial exactly? What would you have to do? Well, it starts off with a questionnaire which is designed to help establish each individual person's baseline of what's normal for them with regards to sex and arousal. So they'll ask them questions about uh, 
things like how often they think about sex, how often they attempt penetrative sex with a partner. I was intrigued as to whether people would fib on a Q&A like this, because as we know, there's so much pressure to pretend that everybody's sex life is glossy, glorious and brilliant. But I, I chatted to John Connell, who's a Max chief scientific officer, and he said because they really need people to be honest in order for these trials to be legitimate, they're quite thorough about um emphasising the need for accurate reporting here. So after you've done uh, various questionnaires, you will then be given either five milligrams, 10 milligrams of this new drug or a placebo, a dummy pill. You'll then be tested on whether or not that drug is working as hoped within your system by being asked to watch some porn while wearing a device called a Ridgie scan, um, which is a tool <laughs> that uh, measures the success of your tool. Um, I actually gave this a Google and I encourage people to do this themselves at home so you can actually see what a Ridgie scan looks like. Um, it's like a, a little box that has two wires with loops coming out. Uh, one goes around the base of your dong and the other one goes at the top and every five seconds they compress. Um, apparently that's not a sexy stimulating feeling. It's, it's just, it's a bit odd, but it, it shouldn't, it's subtle enough that it, it doesn't really interfere with um, how horny or not you may be feeling. Allegedly it's comfortable enough that um, often Ridgie scans are employed uh, to measure nocturnal tumescence. So basically people wear right. them overnight. So they're, they're, they're fairly comfy and, and padded and stuff. I'm I'm glad you're explaining because I missed this episode of Tomorrow's World. <laughs> um, they're primarily at Mac, uh, asking people to wear this Ridgie scan and watch porn uh, for around 15 minutes, and they will be observed from another room um, that's hidden by Mac scientists. Okay, and what's in it for you apart from if you're the kind of person who gets off on having people watch you whilst you watch porn with a device around your penis? <laughs> do you get paid? You do. You get £680 plus reasonable travel expenses as compensation. Okay. Okay. for your time uh, and John and I did chit chat about how that figure is reached because um, as part of the ethics of these trials they have to make sure that they're not coercive but one thing that a lot of people don't consider is that if you participate in a clinical trial you are given a, a pretty comprehensive health MOT they do things like ECGs they run blood tests on you um, lots of, of people actually discover things about their bodies that they didn't know so is it safe, do you think? This is the biggie, really, isn't it? And I imagine for a lot of people, not least because there have been reports in the press in recent years of clinical trials that have gone terrifyingly wrong. Lessons have been learnt from these, these awful tragedies. Reports have gone into great detail to make sure that everybody else running clinical trials doesn't replicate those same mistakes. But also, I must emphasise... That is so unusual. And the number of hoops that a drug has to jump through before it reaches this stage of clinical trial where we are actually testing it on people are massive. Um, they're tested in labs. They're often tested on animals. They're tested at a very low level and very low doses at first. They're assessed by multiple committees. MAC have actually gone through six escalations of initial trials to make sure that the levels of the drug they're using here are thoroughly and utterly safe. They've been in front of the um, MHRA or Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency um, 
and they have to ascertain before they reach this stage what the PK of the drug is or pharmacokinetic. That basically means that they know everything about how the drug is absorbed, distributed in the body, metabolised and excreted over time. So although this is a trial, they're not really testing the safety. What they are testing is whether it will do what they hope it will do under some of the circumstances under which it's likely to be used. Now I want to know what porn they showed the animals. (laughs) Uh, So who are they looking for to participate? Well, because there are naturally a lot of variables in uh, what causes ED. They need a really large sample size. We're talking hundreds of people in order to thoroughly test this drug at this stage. So they're looking for men, people with penises, aged 18 to 59. You can be any sexuality and you have to have erectile dysfunction. Now, if you've used pills or other treatments, and and even if they've worked, that's fine. Um, But you have to still be suffering from erectile dysfunction if you're not using any type of intervention. Um, As I mentioned earlier, they're looking for people with ED and also people with ED who also have mild depression. That means that your GP might have noted down something like you having a low mood. They can accept people on certain types of antidepressants, but not others, because some might uh, interact with the drug in, in funny ways. But otherwise, you ought to be pretty healthy. One thing you should know is if you are somebody with a female partner, they will need to be aware that they will need to use some form of contraception like a coil or pill uh, in addition to you both using condoms for several months after you've participated in the trial. That's because at this stage, they haven't yet thoroughly tested how the drug might stick around in semen and if it does, uh, whether it will have an effect on pregnancies. Okay, so if you're interested, where can you find out more? You can find out more at researchforyou.co.uk forward slash ED study. It's really important for me to underline that you can withdraw at any point during this process. Everything is completely confidential. They will tell your GP that you're taking part in a clinical study just in case it ha- you know, there are any repercussions down the line, but they won't tell anybody else. So that's researchforyou.co.uk forward slash ED study. And actually, if you do suffer from erectile dysfunction, whether or not you want to participate in this trial, do get in touch with the show as well. I'm sure we will be returning to this subject on the foxhole again. Uh, Alex, we're going to see each other next for our Christmas special. I'm shuddering already. Just wait till you see what I've got in store for you, Ollie. It may or may not involve a Ritchie scan. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It is Kate in Berlin, who says, Hey Ollie, I'm a big fan of the show. I want to say a big thank you for all the hard work you put into the podcast. It is a gem I recommend to everyone. And if possible, I was also wondering if you could make me Manbassador of Berlin, please. It would be an honour. Uh, Well, Kate, it was your £25 donation on PayPal that really swung it, but I did admire your politeness. Uh, And I was surprised to see that we hadn't allocated Berlin before. Uh, Hamlin and Dusseldorf, yes, Uh, but uh, Berlin, no, it's yours, as Leonard Cohen never sang. Uh, Congratulations to Kate. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we will see you with our 2021 Christmas Spectacular on December the 10th.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.